So we're going to be in 1 Kings right now, chapter 8, picking it up, I believe, at verse 12. The title from our last teaching was Simpletons We Were, Templetons We Are. It's rather industrial, and I don't apologize for that. And I want to preface this in Psalm 14. And I'll pick it up in verse 1. Rather short, but pertinent. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand and seek God. I'll close there. The word fool actually is a short version of a simpleton. A simpleton is, in fact, by definition, a fool, one who also is gullible. You're swayed and easily able to follow the whim of a cultural change, of a new experiential moment somewhere that will take you out of a place that bores you spiritually allows you to soar once again. And I say that because we are vulnerable to saying something must be better. Something needs to be different. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we make changes to the disciplines of seeking the Lord for what is only a temporal fix to a carnal urge, we actually become depleted we become disingenuous. We actually are in the process of moving towards destroying what God has spent our lifetime doing, and that's building us up in the faith. Those are times in which we, being gullible or foolish, are vulnerable to what we know. In the scriptures is the warning against heresy. What God has said, challenged by men who say, we want something different to hear. We're not interested in the morality of the Bible or the ethics of the Bible. We're not interested in the historic documentation of a people group we don't even know. Or an ancient church in which even it stands corrected, at least five of them in the closing book of the Bible, Revelation. And so the reason that this is important, at least to anchor that, is that this is about the procession that we are involved in as members of his body and those who have a banner of faith. When we talk about what we once were as simpletons, acknowledging that all of us at one time had the habit of foolishness. 
of easily being persuaded to do the things contrary to God, we are not that person presently. Doesn't mean you can't do a dumb thing. If you made it through this week without doing a dumb thing, you're exercising a perfection that is limited to the next week in which you won't have that success. Everybody moves and has ultimately in their faith opportunities to please God exceedingly and to provoke people to marvel at God really amazingly. You're all inspirations. But at any point in time, in this procession of spiritual life, that means making it to the house of God, you will find yourself at times saying, I've missed the mark. I got out of step. I pulled over to the sidelines. I sat it out. I didn't have a voice. I didn't have my mind that wanted to be engaged. I wanted something effortless, not something that would cost me calories. I'm trying to store calories. Because we find comfort in things that actually don't do anything but burden us inevitably. But they also teach us that this flesh cannot be satisfied apart from the spirit. That's why we peeked back in Galatians last week, closing on that. All of the characteristics of carnality that at times provoke any one of us to be disengaged from God, or if you would, to find yourselves engaged with the world, ready to marry it, as opposed to staying true to God. So this teaching is very timely. We're going to look at some of the things right now that is taught by Solomon in this both procession and now ceremony of celebrating the building of the temple. And I will say with that statement, may you celebrate the building of the temple, which is you, by the residency of the Holy Spirit. May you celebrate that. God's at work, even if you don't want him to be, and even if you gave up on him completing the work, he is at work. He's faithful to that charge. And I'm happy that he has not given up on me. And I'm confident of that. I may not like what I see comparatively to what I believed I once was, but I have no idea how this, when it falls, will reveal actually the work that he has seen all along. Extraordinary. In my opinion, this is marble that even Michelangelo would be troubled in trying to carve anything out of. But that's the difference between somebody like Michelangelo, obviously that renowned sculptor and painter of his day, and somebody like me. He was a visionary. God is the greater visionary. To have that skill to be able to look at a stone and see Moses, to see David, to paint upside down with accuracy and the merging of paints, even before we had the technology of making paints the way they are today, amazing. So take what work that he is noted for
and multiply that times a thousand more. And that's what God is able to see through us. Canvases that are blotchy, and at times we don't even imagine what that color in our life is for. And have you ever been called a blockhead? Don't take that as an insult. Take it as a compliment. God does great things with blockheads. He's proven that through a man that is noted for it. Stone cutters and carpenters, but most importantly right now, all of these things having been done in this place in Jerusalem, the temple, is a picture of what God not only ordained but is worthy of. All of the investment that you have put in to the acknowledgement of God who has summoned you from the world and to seat you in the heavenlies. And by the way, you're getting a practice right now where you're seated. He will seat you in the heavenlies where the Lord has been seated at the right hand of his Father and you're getting a practicum of what it's like to sit. Everything that we do is a practicum ultimately to the temple experience of taking this place that the Spirit of God resides and placing it anywhere that he wants to go and where his heart is is to be in the house of prayer and where the congregants come. That's the cool thing about it. He's made us independent contractors for the Holy Spirit. You ever wanted to be your own man, your own woman? God's given you that liberty by his residency. He's just, take me where I want to go. Okay, where do you want to go, Lord? I'd like to go to, can we go to church today? That's really where I'd like to go. Love a church. And then where would you like to go? Whatever your heart's desire is, for you have met my heart's desire. Whatever your heart's desire is, is my desire. Just take me to the house of prayer. Beginning in verse 12 of 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon says this, and I closed on it last week. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. This was God honoring Solomon's father, David. And the Lord was blessed that David would propose such a thing, though he had not asked for such a thing. Because God can't be enclosed, encased. Not really. We see in symbolic language and pictures that he's willing to be identified with such. Have you ever thought of how marvelous it is that God has chosen to be identified with us? He can't box him in, yet he fluffs his pillow up, he takes his throne, he moves into these bodies, and he says, I'm real comfortable here. I'm real confident in you. And I'm going to do extraordinary things through you. That's what baffles me. I can see other people where I would think the Holy Spirit would really want to come into, but me, I'm going got to be some mistake. It's not that I feel contrary to what my mom's opinion was about me or my dad's opinion, different than my mom's opinion, <laughs> different than my brother's opinion. 
But when you think that on the heart of God is your face and everything about you and that he is quite motivated to love you and at times we say, but all I'm able to see in this is a dark cloud. You don't have to worry because he's all light. And what that means in scriptures and in poetic language, David pens it in at least two Psalms, is that there's a mystery about God. If he did not permit Moses to see his face, held him in the cleft of a rock and passed before him to where only the back was exposed, God's saying, the way you get to know me is through faith. I could sit beside you right now in human form and you would be no more impressed to follow me in that moment than you are now in where you are in faith. That's why he doesn't play on our emotions. He doesn't mature us by what we have to see. He matures us by what we believe. And this right now is a believing moment because the reality of David's dreams is lived out through his son Solomon and Solomon completed it to the dot and tittle of the plan that David received from God to have it done. And Solomon right now is inspiring the people. This is what we do. This is where we go. Let's do this thing. I got a text this morning and it was a proposal to have a, another special and all I had time to do was, let's do this thing. It's kind of a cultural phrase, meaning I'm into it, let's do it. Only to get another response, not quite ready for it, sore throats, and I said, that's okay. Because I knew the heart behind it and I knew the refrain would be great, we'll do it. We'll do that song. Solomon right now is with the masses of the people that could possibly look as a dark cloud upon that place as they descend, as they move up and as they spread out. A million people in different apparel of robes would have looked probably like a hanging beehive. You've seen it where it looks like the tree's breathing. This procession would have led to Jerusalem probably being seen as a breathing, live organism. And it was, it was spiritually alive. Solomon, it says in verse 14, the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. So we had a good chunk of standing today. And while you were standing, whether or not you knew that, it was an act of worshiping the Lord. It's a liberty that you have to sit. It's an act of worship when you stand. However, when you sit, according to custom as well, you were also showing yourself positioned to be taught. Either way, it's a tribute to God. And Solomon right now in this invocation is telling us by this account, not penned by him, but this account right now, is about what the people are enjoying as an assembled group of people. This actually right now in the part two of this is the testimony that is being in essence revealed by what the people are doing. 
The previous verses that we studied was simply giving us an overview of the house of God. This right now gives us an insight into the testimony of the people of God, just like you. There are people that came here today that know you or don't know you. But based on the fact that in this moment you are here, you're a testimony. You may be a curiosity, but greater than that, you are a testimony. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David. He's giving testimony of his spiritual accomplishment through his father who had this vision. And with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Verse 17, now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. Verse 18, but the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Isn't that cool that the things that are in your heart that are of God and for God and quite misunderstood by other people seemingly that are godly and definitely those who are godless, the Lord sees it. You did well that it was in your heart. You do well when the things that are in your heart concern the things of God. Well, then why don't I see the results of it? Well, remember the results are different than the approval of it. Usually when things are built, and especially when you require contracts to be signed and blueprints to be made and there's a stamp approved, approved, approved. The approval is a different outcome than ultimately the finished work. It's a different stage of it. And so God sees this and says, you've done well that it was in your heart. Doing well because something is in your heart that God sees should be for you a great encouragement. If this were my last day, there would be a generation, you, my family would say, he did well. It was in his heart to move into a shell of a place and with what he was given and the people that came, he did well. It was in his heart to do this. This is something that I've actually been allowed to see, but there are things that are still in my heart that I want to see. And am I able to believe that what I do see is in essence an encouragement to what I yet still want to see? Or does it get past? 
There's a quote here both from God. There's an explanation both from Solomon. It's actually conversation between God and Solomon. What they see. Conversation that you and I would say, that sounds like prayer. Yep, that's prayer. How are you doing communicating with God on what he sees and what's in your heart? That God says, that's awesome. It's well that you've done that, that you've thought of me in that way. Hold on to it. Don't give up on it. Take another footstep. And by the way, be back in the procession once again to take your rightful place on a throne, a cushion, to stand on holy ground. Don't forget me in the process of waiting things out as it was on your heart to do. I just think that's awesome. In your heart to build the temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, verse 19, this is what David would hear. You shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, not dwelling anything longer than to move into the next verse. That's me. What my father had as a visionary has been passed to me as the one who actually fulfilled it. I have filled the position of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. He draws back historically to the time in which, as we talked about last week, Moses was given the assignment to be the lawgiver. The 10 articles that concluded God's opinion about himself and his opinion about people and ultimately how adjudication would rest on the infallibility of a judicial understanding. This is who I am. Don't make anything like me, for I cannot be made like anything. And these are the rules that I have when you approach me. And these are the rules that I have when you approach your citizen, friends, and family. And if you abide in these, which God gave as a universal law specifically to a very specific and conclusive people, the Jews, he meant it. All of the other laws that basically have come from that have been a result of the violations of the first 10. See, if there was no violations of the first 10, would you need some 100,000 laws on the books to govern the well, who would have thought of that, them doing that thing? Who would have thought I would have needed this? Because it was very concise. It was meant to be very simple. It was meant to be very much applied. And the only other regulations came to be were those that had food implications for health and where the Lord would be taking his people. And the others would be the technicalities of how the priesthood would worship God as that was maturing. Other than that, God was quite happy with 10. He really was. Jesus did simplify it, though. And that was pretty awesome. 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. See if you can work with that one. And so as you move through verses 22 through 53, in which right now the house of God has been presented, the house of testimony, brief, I understand that, we move into it being a house of prayer, which actually closes off this entire chapter. All of this about prayer and what God desires to satisfy and the discipline of prayer. Do you guys pray as you once did, like when you were in your crib? I had a classic prayer. I was so good at it, and it was so meaningful. I was taught it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Keep me through the story night. Isn't it story night? Back then it was story night. I wanted to hear a story. So I omitted story, I guess, for the purpose of having mom read me a story. Keep me through the story night. Wake me in the morning bright. I never did the one that says, and if I should die before I wake, Take my soul, whatever. Yeah. Can I get a pancake? I don't know. I stayed away from that one. That was, that was a little bit too depressing. It was so effective and so meaningful. I used it right up to the time I was a senior in high school. <laughs> the point being made is that God allowed the sincerity of my heart and what I had been taught as a young boy, even to, even to his pleasure to hear me. I'm somewhat being facetious, but I'm also being truthful. I learned to talk with God when my desire to mature for the sake of connecting with him was inspired by the things he would let me go through and the sufferings that ultimately could only be transacted to deliverances when I talked beyond the crib prayer. The crib prayer was okay when I was in the crib and the Lord honored my heart because I truly believe he saw my heart even in the recitation of it. But boy, did I learn how to pray when all of a sudden I became serious about following God and he said, now let's talk. I've waited 31 years for this wretch, and you're gonna be awesome in what you hear, and I'm going to be awesome in what I do. And that was true. Awesome because I was in awe that God would talk to me and validate who I was at 31 something beyond what mom or dad ever could do. But Solomon right now moves into this time as we look in identifying the importance of prayer. Therefore, as he stood before the altar of God in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven, above or on the earth, below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts, 
24, you have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. The acknowledgement that it's by God's mouth, he keeps his promises, it's his hand that satisfies his accomplishments. I've got two hands. I know what they can do and what they can't do. But I always think in terms of reflecting on what they were allowed to do. Wow, God, you did that through me. I've had him make me into a plumber of renown. He's never made me into an electrician. That's for sure. I don't have that. But I've done things with these hands. And I've always said that was God. I've done things with my hands on a handlebar that was powered by a big 800cc engine. And that was God. I've also done things on that bike in which had God's hand not been with me, the aftermath would have been far different. God. But this acknowledgement of God's hand on our life, no matter what the outcome, it's a testimony, it's a tribute of what prayer actually is about. That in every situation, every incident, we pray. Zachary, Christy, and Everest are in Minnesota. They got in late last night, drove an hour to get to the hotel. He's there because the providential hand of God through an incident that rendered a consequence has not stopped him from seeking the face of God through the agencies of technology and medicine. He's a marvel, but his life changed. All of our lives have changed in some capacity. I saved on my phone a prayer that he gave within weeks of being at Craig, where I flew in, as you recall, with frequency. It was one of the most articulate, mature prayers that I have ever heard. Amazing. He sounded like a pastor. I am a pastor. His prayer, as he was not even into the early stages of recovery, was amazing. I saved it, and I marvel at his communication skill with God. Prayer is so essential. Look what is continued to be said here with regard to prayer. I think it's it's very awesome for all of us. Therefore, 25, the Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. So we need to pray for the generation that is among us and under us the ones that look up to us, but at one point in time, they will bury us. They need to have a hope that as these bodies temporal are planted, that we come into the eternal, they have something more to consider than simply the sympathy, or at times what the Greeks would say, the tragedy of life. They need to be seen as those who say, this is the exclamation mark that I will have on my life as I've surrendered the older generation. I pick up the staff and lead the next generation. 
Solomon would be doing that very same thing, trusting the next. His story turns out to be different than David with Solomon. There can be differences that, that do end up, if you would, stopping a generation. That's why we need to be praying for the next generation. We need to be praying that we finish well so that they get to finish victoriously. The life of Israel is truly about the blessings that were received out of obedience and the consequences that were suffered because of disobedience. Verse 26, And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. He's granting in this communique this awesome understanding that this is a God that cannot be contained, but only by mercy and grace would allow himself to be identified with something as simple as a two by two by four box, something like that. The presence and power of God already defined by nature itself. And David was allowed to appeal that that particular symbol that Moses was told to build would be sufficient to be housed once again in this extraordinary temple, only to realize that generations that they could not see would be experiencing literally you and I being made into that temple that God would reside in. And we're the ones that really have to marvel at God because we go, why would you? I mean, what Solomon built was magnificent, spectacular. Why would you indwell in me and call me a temple? And that's the grace and mercy and love of God being reflected in what you and I have a hard time believing he would be so gracious concerning Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplications, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. Verse 30 and may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, notice this, forgive. We're a forgiven people. It's not what you've done wrong, it's what God has done right. And you have the advantage of knowing that by the reason that God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Though sin separates us from God, his blood cleanses us for the reconnection with God. We go through symbolic moments in our faith because we're people that identify and he identifies with what we need to touch and handle. The simple communion cups are profoundly effectual and they're essential churches many of them hop over it because they think it's too much of a bother grape juice have you ever seen grape juice on a new chair 
It's just terrible. Crumbs. We have to vacuum them. Somebody almost choked on a wafer last week. That could have been a lawsuit. And so we've learned actually to limit what is the essentials of putting ourselves in remembrance of God who by his grace, his mercy, his love has chosen to take up a residency that was provided for by Jesus in satisfying the cross in coming out of the grave and before ascending to the Father. He said, I'm going to send you a helper and he will come, my spirit. He will come upon you. He will indwell within you. You will be everything that is necessary to bring testimony to my name and to ultimately even the consternation of people that couldn't believe that anything good could come of you or that you could think good of anything about God. That's how I'm going to use you. And so until the conclusion in the last verse of this chapter, it's all about prayer. It's too much really to list right now. But it's very essential in terms of even where we pick this up in verse 31, there are seven areas that the Lord would have us understand about the essentials for prayer. 